Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 387th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is generously brought to you by patrons Jason Apple and Ben Donovan. Thanks, guys. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today, we've got Chris Pasig on the show. He's the editor behind the new Max series, Telemarketers, which is like a crazy found footage documentary that spans multiple decades, taking down uh, a telemarketer syndicate from the inside out. It's pretty wild, and it's executive produced by the Softy Brothers and Danny McBride. He's also edited episodes of The Vow, The Hillary Documentary, all sorts of great stuff. And we have a really cool and insightful conversation with him about what it means to edit documentary and what the role and duty of a editor is in that capacity it's really fascinating oh also somebody to beat phil which is a personal favorite of mine so he's, he's got a lot of really great stuff i loved this conversation yeah he also has like a background in some narrative uh, film editing he did a paul rudd movie and ashley judd movie so yeah, it's but it was great talking to him, and uh, hopefully you like it. I I just finished watching the show. It's only three episodes. Uh, the last episode I think is kind of long, but I think altogether it's like a like a long feature <laughs> film, mm-hmm. but definitely worth watching. And I think if you at all are into documentary filmmaking or even like YouTube vlogging, like what here's a, like any any sort of unscripted filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, you should check out this show because it's uh, he, they do an an awesome job of using footage and also the graphics are like all like kind of nineties style fonts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Fun. Yeah. And yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of cool. It was a really exciting conversation. I think we really do dig in on the philosophy behind editing and documentary. So I, I really truly love this conversation. Um, and all the episodes are available now on max. So go check it out there. And before we jump into the conversation with Chris Warren, I've been dying to know, what have you been working on lately? Well, thanks for asking, Matt, because I had a color grading session today mm-hmm. uh, for a job I did a couple weeks ago. And so the color correction session, right, a lot of times like the director will be there. Sometimes the cinematographer will be there. People from the agency might or might not be there. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll do like rounds, like the director gets to set some looks with the DP and the mm-hmm. colorist, and then the agency will come, whatever. I realized our colorist was in LA. I'm in LA, and our cinematographer is in LA. And I said, hey, we're all, all three of us are in LA. 
And the, the, my cinematographer sent me a text and he was like, are you going to be in person or remote? And I said, you know what, why, why not do it in person? Right? Like mm-hmm. that's how we used to color everything. Right. We'd go and we'd sit in a, uh, oddly dark room together <laughs> with gray walls and just talk about like mid tones and mm-hmm. a little more magenta here and warm it up. Um, and I was so excited to email our colorist and then he goes, you know what? My studio is like not exactly set up. I just moved, but don't worry. I'm using Evercast and it's 10 bit 422 color and it'll look great. And I was like, okay, fine. So we did this remote color session today, but it really made me think about how COVID is just like ruined post-production. I know, mm-hmm. I know this is like, mm-hmm. I sound like a broken record because I keep bringing this up, but I've just these last few days, I just, realized like why I'm so unhappy with so many of my cuts. And it's because it used Mm -hmm. to be that we would just be in the same room. And now, even though we're in the same town, we're in the same city, we're using the same software. It's like, no one wants to sit together in the same room Mm -hmm. to do this work. And it's driving me crazy because how can you make a good edit without sitting next to each other, without trying 10 different takes and seeing how the music accidentally falls in an interesting Mm -hmm. place, you know? Yeah trying different sound effects and so i was just curious or or i even say pointing at things yeah you know like watching them move things around yeah it it really bums me out too and it's funny that you bring it up because at work we're hiring a new editor um like for like kind of a support position and one of the things that myself and the head of production have both really kind of mandated is that they're here in la so that we can come in and have FaceTime with them and like talk to them and know them like an edit is a, is an, a, a live collaborative tactile. thing, tactile thing, even though it's all on screens. And I think it's really hard for people to be reminded of that. And look, I, I don't, I get it, especially if you're like a colorist or something where most of the work you do with a director or with a, an EP or whomever, most of the time they don't know what the heck you're doing. You know, most of the time mm-hmm. you're just working solo and like even I, I'm pretty hands on in color and I know you are as well. And it's my, maybe my favorite step of the process. Even with the colorists I've worked the most intimately with, there is a certain point where they're just propagating the decisions you've made together. So there's still a good 70% of the time. That's like, you don't really need to be there, but you do need to be there for the beginning for a prolonged amount of time and then to spot check things as well. So like if I don't have a problem with sitting on the couch and, you know, pulling out my laptop and doing some work as you're doing your independent study, then you shouldn't either. That's part of the gig, you know? Yeah. And well, to me, what was interesting is that the colorist was saying like, don't worry, the image quality is going to be great. You don't have to be in the room with me. And to me, I was like, I don't, need the image like i'd rather watch this on my iphone or an ipad or my macbook because that's how like 95 percent of people are going to see this anyway i don't care about having like a 10-bit giant you know 40 inch screen to look at in a perfectly lit room what i care about is seeing you use like da vinci and Mm -hmm. you know like and what nodes you're putting a lot of it is because when i do my director's cut and i change out some takes and i want to match my shot to shot that you graded i want to remember like see how you did it so Mm -hmm. i'm doing kind of a similar Mm -hmm. workflow when i'm doing like changing out my shots and 
and I and I want to talk to you, and I want to be like, oh, try that sharpening filter. Like, what does that mm-hmm. look like? Mm-hmm. Or what about, what about some halation? Like, that's kind of can be cool. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like so much is lost by not like walking to lunch together and talking about inspiration and mm-hmm. looking and I don't know. So I'm just I'm really in this phase where I'm like on my next job, you know, and whatever. I always come on the podcast. And I'm like, I'm going to demand this thing. And then everyone's going to wear name tags on the next set I'm shooting on. And then, you know, it doesn't happen. But like in my name mind, tags is easy because you can show up with name tags and be like, everyone needs to put one of these on. Yeah, I did do name tags on my last two shoots, but it's like it was a little bit of an afterthought and like only half the people put them on and they're like, wait, why are we wearing name tags? And I'm like, I, I asked people to put name tags. Oh, how come? It's like, uh, you know, I just want to know everyone's names. <laughs> like, OK, and you they're in on the walkie and they're on the call. Street. I'm like, yeah, but, y- you know, I just felt like I was explaining myself yeah. and I'm like, who cares? I know who I know who I need to know. But now I kind of want to be like, hey. I want to be in the room with the editor, you know, Mm -hmm. anyhow, thanks for listening, Matt. And thanks for your insight. If you all have any thoughts on in-person versus remote, I'm assuming many of our listeners probably love remote working because they don't have to be in LA to be involved in everything, which is also great. But, you know, I prefer being in person Mm -hmm. personally. Well, without further delay... Let's talk about Patreon. Patreon.com slash JustShootAPod is the place where you can throw us a buck or two to keep this show going. We know it's hard out there for filmmakers, so every little bit helps. If you've gotten something out of the show, if you've made a short film or a feature film or you pitched on something recently and you used something that we taught you or one of our guests taught you more likely, consider throwing us a buck or two because it is the thing that pays for our editor and all of our other fees, of which there are many. It really helps us out and keeps us emotionally engaged with the show. Well, yeah, uh, check it out. Patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. We really appreciate it. And without further delay, let's move on to the rest of the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, hey, we are here with Chris Passig, editor of Telemarketers and many other shows, including Feed Phil, which I believe, Matt, was your unpaid endorsement about two years ago? Somebody Feed Phil. Sure. Somebody sure. Feed Phil. Oh, somebody Feed Phil. Sorry, I saw the abridged version. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Chris, for coming on. Yeah, sure. Show. Thanks for having me. So exciting. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about telemarketers and how you got involved in it? Sure, yeah. I had worked with a uh, producer, Claire Reed, on The Vow, um, who thought I might be a good fit. I live in New Jersey. I hadn't been in New York City in two years. It's kind of like seriously leaving the cave, going to New York for the first time uh, since everything shut down. Uh, and yeah, and meeting Sam Lippman Stern, who's uh, in our show as the young man uh, working at the call center, um, and our co-director Adam Lowe. It was really a perfect match in that you know Sam. You know, this is a film in like this post-industrial kind of crummy New Jersey city. Sam is this dropout, and he's friends with Pat Pespis, you know, our other main character, who's an addict. And, you know, I had a, kind of a very similar experience when I was 18 as, as our character. So we kind of were able to bond from the uh, bond on that. And took how, there. how similar? Um, like, you know, did you work as a telemarketer, Chris? I didn't work as a telemarketer, but I did work. Um, uh, in a call center. Um, I wasn't selling, I was helping folks. Um, I also, though, um, spent about a year as a dropout uh, working as a mover, um, which a lot like the call center and telemarketers, you know, the, the rest of the workforce was, you know, a lot of folks from halfway homes. And uh, yeah, just kind of had uh, an appreciation for the, the that scene <laughs> that Sam was in. So I saw the show. Matt hasn't seen it yet, but um, one of the interesting things about it is that it's it really is made up of a lot of found footage. You know, for the our listeners that don't know much about the show, it's basically about yeah these two guys that work at a telemarketing company and realize that they're part of this giant scam and they're trying to mm -hmm. figure out what to do about it. But it's really kind of like a buddy comedy, uh, and a lot of it is based on this footage that they were filming. Uh, I don't know, 10, 15, 15 years ago, you know, while they're working at this call center. And so I imagine, Chris, like I, one of the things that got me excited about having you on and about watching it is I saw like the Softy brothers uh, were EPs on it and it, they're, you know, it's on HBO and there's like a lot of. And Danny McBride. Oh, yeah, Danny McBride. <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a real Folks, HBO yeah. trifecta right there. Yeah. 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 He knows the foot fist way, that guy. Sure. Uh, and so I'm curious. Like, to me, if I was like, here's two dudes that like know nothing about filming, very little about <laughs> right. filmmaking, that right. recorded themselves 15 years ago on like VHS cameras or whatever. Right, uh, right, right. And now they want to make a docu-series out of it. And 
I don't even know what the ending is yet. Like I'd probably like not be that interested in working on this project. It just, <laughs> cause mm-hmm. it's like, it could lead to nothing. So I'm curious, like you as the editor, who sure. obviously are like kind of a critical part of telling the story, like what got you convinced that this was even like worthwhile telling aside oh from like, connecting with so, know, the, so, the characters. So, so Adam, our co-director has kind of spoken to this also, but you know, I saw a promo that was about five minutes long and really all I needed to see was Pat. Um, you know, the, the, the promo I saw had Pat, you know, scenes from the show where he's snorting heroin in the car and going to complete his sales. Um, there was a scene of him kind of explaining, um, you know, that, uh, uh, name of the company, the name of the company is CDG might as well stand for criminals doing good. He was just so, charismatic that i you know i just kind of felt from the beginning that you know uh, beyond the issue of telemarketing fraud like this was a once in a lifetime documentary character that i had always hoped to have my hands on so um so yeah so i was kind of sold right from the get and then yeah and then the found footage thing is interesting because um same thing adam our co-director uh kind of has astutely put it that like it's not exactly found footage because we have the guy that shot it you know what i mean so like something like winnebago man or something like that like you it's a mystery and you're never going to get the insight from the person of what they were going for with it whereas this um you know we have sam um he had hundreds of tapes in his closet um and uh, you know, 20 hours of uh, 12-year-olds doing bong hits, um, uh, which for, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he was a juvenile delinquent, and before he was at the uh, you know, the, the call center, he was filming him and his buddies just kind of fucking around and skateboarding and doing graffiti. And, uh, and they're all, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. So, um, but yeah, that said, I'm a huge fan of found footage stuff um you know when i met the team on this um i my mind immediately went to heavy metal parking lot of just the you know we our show kept the comedy and sort of flavor of a found footage thing but was unique in that yeah like we are pushing a story forward and yeah like we are kind of in that construct of a, a, a true crime show. I guess we didn't really think we were ever making a, a true crime show, so to speak. But, um, but yeah, it was like, let's have, let's have that vibe of like a great found footage piece and put it in this new, you know, present it in this new way. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the other shows that you cut is The Vow. And they, I, I'm just realizing in, in this conversation that uh, there's kind of a shared DNA in so much as you have this wealth of archival footage, the, the quote unquote hundred VHS tapes in the closet. Yeah. Right. The vow was like a guy that was also trying to document he it. He was right? trying to document it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then you also have the characters in present day reflecting back on things um, and adding a little bit of context, clarifying things, all that on a practical level. I'm curious. Sure how you go about employing um, that to your advantage, right? Like I imagine yeah. you're doing some version of 
a string out with the archival stuff and then uh-huh. putting together a wish list of sound bites and things like that. Walk us through that the interaction between archival and present day footage. I think on any show, telemarketers is different because it's just it's just sort of one of a kind that like it was so singular and we didn't even know if we wanted interviews with people. Like we did some proof of concepts, like they're smoking, they're drinking in the interviews. They like their memories are fuzzy. Like we really leaned into, we let the like rough around the edges sort of amateur nature bleed into those interviews. But regardless, like any kind of, any kind of thing where you have a big archival element. Yeah. You want that to be, uh, your spine, honestly. Um, you know, I definitely prefer shows where those sit down interviews are supporting the archival and not the other way around. Um, so yeah, I think it's personally, mm-hmm. like I would tell people it's like, uh, building from the inside out. So yeah, you got to screen all that archival, you know, you know, you're earmarking what is going to work in a, five or 10 second clip. But what you're really looking for is the sort of tent pole pieces that you don't need to explain and you don't need to, you know, you don't need to cut to an interview for and what, what can, you know, what can speak for itself um, for as long as possible. And when you say, Chris, what you're looking for, are you saying like you literally are the editor just sitting there by yourself in a room with all the footage and just looking for, pieces of footage that can be the tent poles or are you having like a sit down with the directors and the filmmakers and the t- producers and like really planning it out on paper with like hey act one is going to be mm-hmm. this yeah. two. because How's i sure. broken yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i yeah. did read this article that said that benny softy maybe had pitched the three episode structure well yeah so so telemarketers was unique in that it, you know uh yeah well i mean telemarketers kind of had this built-in episode structure and that you know we have these time jumps, you know what I mean? So, so our first episode, the place they're working at gets shut down. And then a couple of years later, they pick up, you know, an investigation, uh, in it, um, that investigation at the end of two hits, uh, a major snag with one of our characters, personal lives. And it's almost 10 years before they pick it back up again. So we kind of had that built in. We'd always have a, a one, have a loose outline going in of like, what the acts are going to be. Um, but some you know a lot of times with great archival it's not always like necessarily pushing the story forward as much as it is illuminating character so you kind of can't you can't you can't totally prepare for the goal you know what i mean you know you, you know your director the person that shot it you know the, the whoever's baby this is, is going to have an idea of what they like and, and what's going to go in. But yeah, I think um, there's definitely a, a long screening process and, you know, a good editor is going to have different eyes as to what it can do. Were they still shooting while you were editing? Uh, yeah. So this one, this one, um, they, um, you know, our third episode, present day investigation, they, we're starting to shoot. They had shot a little bit before I came on, but yeah, most most of the third episode was shot while I was cutting the first two. So is there a scenario where you're like, hey, we need we could use more B-roll for this mm-hmm. or like go get it would be nice if there was an interview with this type of person. Yeah, I mean we 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 yeah, I mean I think we we 
it's tricky to apply the lessons of, of Delamarcus to anything else because the old callers, by and large, they're all still like Facebook friends with our director, but you know, they're all hardworking folks and they're not film people, they're not, you know, they're not professional talking heads. So their availability would drive more than what I could get. You know what I mean? Like if we could find some dude who's in this grainy footage from 2003, like we'll take what we get, what we can get and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll find a way. The thing that made this project so unique is yeah. Like this, this, you know, these folks are invo- involved in this huge scam. They were all, you know, plenty of people that were working for years and years. Um, and when the, like they got shut down, everyone got fired. The guys who own the company, you know, everyone thinks they're working in some crummy little sort of <laughs> pissant company in a, you know, in a, uh, uh, an office park. And meanwhile, the owners, when they get caught, they get hit with the largest fine in con- you know, consumer protection history, $20 million. They're getting Van Gogh's taken away. They're getting quarter million dollar wine collections taken away. Like the, we, even now, so many people could not conceive of what they were involved in. So th- those interviews, like, you're only going to get so much. You know what I mean? They're supporting, you know, they're giving kind of tall tales of this wild office that gets to play really nicely with um, the wild office stuff that we get to see in the show. Yeah, totally. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like the jinx in that you have like all this kind of archival, th- these crazy things that happened like many years ago, but also still today, there are people that are involved in the documentary that are still kind of like probably should go to jail, you know? And so you, you have to like hide their faces and hide their voices. And, and there is like a little bit of a live, like is, is someone going to, get arrested as a result of this documentary, like in real time as it's coming out on HBO, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's I kind mean, of a, an interesting dynamic. We had, um, in our third episode, one of our, uh, you know, our guys meet this, you know, they're amateur journalists. They meet a real journalist who's been working on this, uh, this, the story of this stuff for a while. And, she plays a tape of this telemarketing sort of kingpin who, you know, chased her through a, a, a parking garage, and she recorded his audio. Yeah, he just got he may act. Uh, he got arrested. I want to say within the past two weeks. Um, uh, criminal charges. Which oh wow! These guys just generally don't um, uh, don't ever face. You know, they get. That's kind of the reason why this is like this unsolvable problem. It's. Uh, you know these these places get hit with these uh, right because they're going after the police <laughs> right yeah there's that part too <laughs> oh you said that there isn't a lot from telemarketers that would apply to other documentaries but the one thing that I did notice about it is that uh, it has like really good sound <laughs> like <laughs> all the way from episode one when these guys were just like filming each other sure. like at their workplace probably on really crappy cameras can you tell us a little bit about like some of the technical stuff, like how do you mm, yeah. get such sure. great audio out of like such old footage? I mean, the short answer is uh, not to blow up any mix or spot, but um, 
AI, <laughs> so, sort of, uh, you know, there's tools now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when I was cutting with a lot of that stuff, um, there was just like an insane buzz from the Super 8 camera um, in all of it to the point where like, we didn't think it was necessarily going to go away. We had a period where we were, we were recording voiceover on beat up old cameras <laughs> so that it would blend into the fabric of the show. Uh, eventually our mm-hmm. mixer was able to alleviate a whole lot of that um, uh, with tools that are kind of brand new. Even that, like it's, it's funny to hear you say that we, you know, both our kind of colorist and our mixer were kind of, you know, when we, when we got started, it was just a constant torrent of us saying, you know, make it look shittier, <laughs> make it sound crummier, make sure. it look worse, sure. make it sound like, worse, oh, you know, great. Yeah. Um, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's, you know, uh, same thing, just leaning into the found footage and mature nature of our stuff that, uh, yeah. you know, we all kind of had to think backwards <laughs> uh, in a way. Well, and I, I love the idea of leaning into the nature and the medium of the footage that you have but i think there's a big difference between texture and legibility right like like your point about like oh recording voiceover into these old tools to make them a little rough around the edges makes complete sense that's texture but like the ai is there to like help make sure that things are literally clear yeah for an audience which is an interesting balance to strike to use like the most bleeding edge tools and also uh a camera i bought them with paperboy money you know in 2003 sure (laughs) like a funny dichotomy to have for sure that and that sort of applied to everything that we did in that you know we we had all this amazing archival especially with the wireless in the office but you know how long can you expect an audience? How long can you expect, uh, you know, an HBO audience even to, you know, you can't sit and watch guys smashing keyboards over their heads and, you know, uh, getting wasted at the office and all of these crazy hijinks for, you know, three hours. You have to, you know, yeah, you have to have that sort of sophisticated storytelling uh, as well. So, yeah, that was that was the constant, constant balance on this one. I'm curious, just on a on a truly practical level, the what sort of documents you're working off of, you're screening everything together, right? But then are you literally putting together a script where you're like listing out different bytes that you're hoping for? Do you have a transcript with you? Like, what does that first, from, from, from yeah. screening everything into yeah. that first draft, what does that look like? And really, like, what medium are you drafting in? Sure, yeah. Um, I think in general, and just to expand it past telemarketers, like I would say is, it, you know, anytime I'd be working with something that, um, where there are a lot of interviews, um, I would, you know, I would generally watch everything while I have a transcript at the same time. Um, I'm highlighting the transcript kind of as I go, both for stuff that's sticking out, um, as you know, great story beat um, or great character. Um, then um, doing that for all the interviews. Um, then taking those 
transcripts, uh, taking those highlights, copying out all those highlighted uh, selects into a new document, and sort of then organizing each uh, each interviews uh, you know selects by topic, um, so that um, uh, so that's you know one level of organization, and then beyond that, then making a new document that's interview by topic. Um, and so that way, you know, you can have, you know, your seven people talking about this one topic and have it all in one place and start thinking about how they can bounce off each other. Um, it, um, what was the, that Dr. Dre documentary? Uh, the defiant ones. There was an article that those guys did where that was, that was their process. And that's like a genius thing when schedules get shortened um, and budget gets tighter. There's, you know, there's there's a process out there where, like, you know, story producer and um, maybe an assistant editor are are pulling video selects to watch back, um, and and editors inheriting those, which is not particularly the way I like to go. I really think that 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 that's the writing of the show. You know what I mean? The, the the organizing what you think is good and starting to build a script off of that. Yeah, that's that's your foundation. So um, I try to be the one doing that. Yeah, in- yeah, and and I think that maybe that cuts to the the quick of what I was maybe not realizing I was really asking is like who who writes the show? And it sounds like you know, with all due respect to all of your collaborators, like that's the process, right? Like it, it's. The, the craft is in what's in and what's out, right? Yeah. Um, and it is fascinating to think about how with an archival show in particular, you have, you just have to in, have ingested all of that interview footage in order to be able to crack that nut. Totally. Totally. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I think any documentary editor will, will tell you that, yeah, there's just more authorship in editing documentary than there is, you know, a narrative thing, which is, you know, I, I was in narrative before I got into doc and, you know, the first doc I did, I sort of fell in love with that uh, aspect of it for sure. Well, how does a show like uh, Somebody Feed Phil, which has very much a format and, you know, hey, we're going to Singapore or whatever, we're mm-hmm. everything we film here is what is going to be used for this next episode. Do you find that easier and like more enjoyable or is it less challenging um, but rewarding in other ways? Like how, how do you compare like well, editing that, a show yeah. like that with a show like telemarketers? Sure. I mean that. Um, yeah. I mean, a show like that is tricky because that wasn't exactly my <laughs> experience on that one because I, I, I cut premiere of it so we had a sense of what it was going to be and we had the footage but we're still working out you know like boy i hope phil likes this canola yeah (laughs) totally (laughs) not worse sunk (laughs) totally 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 but like a show like that like um i think one of the reasons that that show so successful is like as much as there is a you know as much as there is um you know that yeah you know where he's going you have a rough sense of what order it's going to go in you know you might you're going to want to follow the trajectory he was actually on but the thing that makes that show special is 
it's you know it's not that different than than cutting standard documentary if there's a scene where phil doesn't like the food <laughs> and it's entertaining and there's some humanity in it you know it makes mm-hmm. the show <laughs> you know you know whether it's something like telemarketers or the vow it's always a combination of like you know you're trusting me with this footage we're having like a broad conversation at first of what you want it to be. And then, you know, you're trusting me to find that space with you that where what I'm envisioning and what you're envisioning line up, you know, with, with the vow or with telemarketers though, there is, um, you know, there's the mandate of like, like there's a clear goal that these characters are trying to take down a bigger entity. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas with somebody feed Phil, like if he doesn't like the cannoli <laughs> sure. at this, you know, vendor's shop, like at the pilot, you don't really know this, but it, like, I think like all, lots of food tourism shows, the publicity that they get from these shows is a huge, huge yeah. deal, right? Yeah. It can make or break a business. <laughs> so sure. I, I wonder now if the process is informed by that responsibility in some way do you know what i mean like as a person i think phil is probably he's a big fan of food so like you don't want to disparage a sure. independent business sure with, sure 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 not sure, liking sure. their cannoli or, sure. or whatever sure and so i wonder are there other circumstances where you, you know you almost feel a responsibility to pull a punch or to to be less truthful or, or leave something out um in documentary so this is an interesting spot for sure. So yeah, I mean, the short answer is no, <laughs> in that um, there are, and yeah, you can expand uh, oh, this. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you can expand this to, yeah, to any kind of documentary of 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 that. Yes, that responsibility to what you're filming and who's responsible. And you know, there's mm-hmm. there's editors that I. I like and I respect, and I think they do great work. Who I've seen say things like, you know, um, I saw someone say that, um, you know, the act of going on camera is this act of generosity, and you have to honor that. And that's sort of the opposite of my, <laughs> of my approach. And and honestly, what brought me, you know, to telemarketers <laughs> in the first place, um, that's not my job is to an the an editor's job is to an audience, right? And that's kind of the director and the, in my mind, that's the director and the producer's job of, of, uh, you know, an editor needs to cut themselves off from the subject as much as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And, um, you're not there to protect them. You're there to, to, I'm there for, to tell make a story. A, exactly. Yeah. Tell a story and entertain an audience. I might just be extra sensitive to this because the documentaries that I love don't pull punches with their subjects. My editing style usually will require a producer or a director to have a hard conversation with the subject, you know, um, uh, something, you know, is going to make the cut that they probably don't love, but, um, and you don't need to like throw people under the bus or like (laughs) over milk that kind of stuff. But like, I think that's, you don't want to, yeah. Like you want, you want an audience to resonate with the people in the film as much as possible. So if you overly protect them, um, you know, um, it kind of doesn't serve anybody. I don't think. 
Um, and I mean, Jesus, our well, what? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Chris. I was gonna, yeah. ask, I was gonna ask what your take is on like all the music documentaries, like the Beyonce, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Taylor Swift. Selena Gomez, the mm-hmm. like Miley Cyrus, because a lot of and these and sports documentaries too. Sure, you're saying like where the the subject is also the EP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like how yeah. like yeah, I, I love the Taylor Swift one because you yeah. know that you, I I got a sense of her process. You know, I like I loved it from like a mm-hmm. her a craft point of view, but yeah. like you know, and she talked about like the Kanye moment. You know, yeah. like yeah. Uh, when he told her she he said on the world stage she shouldn't have received the grammy or whatever it was um like you really got her point of view but you didn't get like uh you know like a filmmaker's point mm-hmm. of view on like the good and the bad like you don't see you you never see any of these people be tyrants or be right you know like have faults sure yeah right? i mean i think um listen i think that it's not impossible to make a great movie where your subject is an EP and it's the way of the world. And, um, I'm a tricky, <laughs> I'm a little tricky of a person to ask because I, I actually, uh, I don't watch a lot of movies when they come out. I have <laughs> this thing where, uh, a, I don't want it to inform the work I'm doing now and B, I kind of want whatever critical consensus or hype around something to like have dissipated by the time I watch it. So I'm like, I'm usually a good five to 10 years <laughs> in the mm-hmm. documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- at the same time, when you like, if there's someone who's just that compelling of a personality, like a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce, um, um, you know, I did this uh, Hillary Clinton documentary, um, very similar where, you know, she's, she's, um, uh, you know, she's sitting down and she's, you know, she gave a 30, very revealing 30 hour four part, interview that we used um but she's you know she's a very guarded person and that movie she very candidly talked about her tensions with bernie um and kind of some lingering resentment and at the end of the day like you know that's the stuff that made the headlines (laughs) with that movie so even in something like that i think Mm -hmm, you know i just think audiences appreciate candor and yeah, and um, they, regardless of who the person is, I think people can identify with people who allow themselves to be vulnerable on camera. It's kind of the the secret sauce to telemarketers. You know, we the this movie couldn't exist with a filmmaker going into one of these call centers. Um, and trying to make the movie because uh, they'd be a tourist. You know what I mean? Like this is a, this mm-hmm. is like, mm-hmm. it gets to, you know, we have a co-director to, to describe me as time. There's like being the bottom rung of society, you know, and he has these voiceovers where he's referring to himself as a scumbag and him and his friends as little pieces of shit. And you know, like, like if you hear, if, if you hear a subject t- calling themselves that in the first five minutes of a movie, like, you know, there's a buy-in and there's like a trust in a narrator who isn't holding back. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, there's, uh, um, 
but yeah, that said, then, then, you know, if you're making a movie about a virtuoso, like a movie like that, maybe you don't, and maybe it's just, the, you know, the power of a virtuoso, you know, on a grand scale in front of you, um, uh, is the way to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I do, you know, it, it's interesting, like even like the Billy Eilish documentary I'm thinking of right now, like it's, it's interesting what, what those documentaries serve. And it's like, a lot mm-hmm. of it is about is they're making it for their fans, right? It's like not necessarily for like new people to discover them. Um, it's like for their fans to get an even more intimate look inside of their lives, which I mean, ultimately just, I think, especially nowadays, you know, when we talk about like the YouTubers and like the, the people, your fans of people that you feel like, you know, so well, as opposed to, Mm-hmm. you know right. back in the day like when we were fans of celebrity like nobody knows anything right. about tom right. cruise's personal life right right right. you know but nowadays like it's a it's a different thing uh i had my kind of last big question was going to be about your transition from narrative to documentary like i, I see uh, according to imdb you made a uh you edited a couple movies big stone gap the fundamentals of carrying big kind of you know paul rudd uh ashley judd films sure like it seemed like films with people that we recognize like what did you learn on those films that you brought into documentary editing and um and i guess the second part of the question is uh like would you go back to narrative or is documentary uh, are you just so power hungry that you'll never leave (laughs) the documentary space um i think it would be hard to go back i mean i think that for a number of projects just having experience in comedy helps you you know um, um, just the rhythm of, uh, you know, the rhythm of a comedic documentary is not that different than, you know, cutting a comedic narrative that Paul Red movie specifically is, um, a road trip movie, which road trips make their way into docs. Um, telemarketers has a piece. So I think from that one, I learned that it's impossible to make a road trip movie without getting a note of get these guys on the road faster. <laughs> so one last thing before we kind of go into our unpaid endorsements. Sure. Before we started recording, you talked about how you were on vacation <laughs> in Maine. Sure. Um, and you had said that you had just kind of come off of two films in a row and needed a break. Can you tell us like a little bit about like that, like how, you know, at this point you've done so many feature length things, you've done so many TV episodes, like how do you like not get overwhelmed and, and like, how do you not get scared that if you, you know, leave town for a month, like people will stop calling you. Like, can you just tell us a little bit about the psychology of like how, how you have a consistent career um, and like mentally, like keep it all together? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, I think one thing I do is uh, look at the bill for my house. <laughs> that's um a motivator Wait, we said how to not get overwhelmed chris <laughs> yeah um i mean honestly it's um picking projects that there's a good chance you're gonna love you know what i mean i think kind of the thrill of cracking a story the thrill of making something so unique um kind of carries that through you know the creative process itself is so rewarding and exciting and addictive 
thing. It, it was funny. So you brought up that um, you brought up that Paul Rudd thing. Um, I cut that movie and um, wasn't really sure what I was going to do after. I had just kind of like gotten in the narrative world, and yeah, and like it's a fun movie and people really like it. Um, but it wasn't really leading to other stuff. So I had this like six month period where I was just sort of green and didn't know how much I had hustle for myself. Um, and yeah, I kind of like burned, <laughs> burned the money I'd saved, uh, cutting that movie kind of ever since then. Um, I'm just kind of, you know, always back of mind thinking of the next one. Whereas now, like, you know, I don't, I don't, if I chose time off, I don't think there would be so much of a waiting period. Um, but um, I still get excited pretty much about any project that comes my way, just even to, to, to learn about. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just really loving what you're doing. Well, before we do our unpaid endorsements, can you, how can people find out what you're working on next? What's, what's after vacation? Sure. Learn yeah. more about um, your projects. Are you on Instagram? I am on Instagram, WM Jumpstart. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the main spot. I usually don't uh, say much until the thing is done. Um, I think that's maybe mm-hmm. just a, <laughs> a self check. Your selfies from Matter Bay. No, yeah, no one really cares <laughs> about the selfies from <laughs> Editor. Sure. Editor Instagram's usually fall in a number of categories one is like i'm really tired like <laughs> like it, i'm i'm a really t- i'm a re- i'm really tired post then there's a uh here's a snap of my timeline my finished timeline that's 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 a mm-hmm. classic editor i like it, i like the timeline ones for sure, sure. yeah 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 just um, a clean timeline yeah. just like really nice and tidy i like yeah. that yeah that's probably why i don't ever post any of mine cuz they're they're <laughs> you know 100 tracks on top and 100 tracks on the bottom um wm jumpstart on instagram uh that would be the spot awesome chris well do you have a few more minutes to endorse with us sure please unpaid endorsements uh so i've got two endorsements they're truly cribbing directly from uh our, our conversation um one chris you brought it up is a heavy metal parking lot yeah um which is found footage not it's not truly found footage but it's like uh a classic rock and roll movie about like dudes basically tailgating (laughs) um before metal shows uh that it feels um sort of ambient and transitory in the way that like um i think a lot of the stuff that we talked about could you know i think um Chris, you do a great job of like adding more narrative thrust to your work, but it, it's still kind of meant to have this sort of like fly on the wall verite sort of moment. And you just kind of can't believe these crazy characters. Um, and then as a sidecar, uh, Decline of Western Civilization, which is, uh, you know, kind of the follow up to that, which is uh, about punk instead. She did a um decline of the western civilization part two which is the metal years which is not the same as heavy metal parking lot um but yeah yeah real real shaggy those movies um in a way that's really uh fun and strange and weird so those are my endorsements 
we um sure uh, well, and winnebago man i boy i'd forgotten all about that movie until you mentioned it and really defined south by southwest for a couple of years i feel like yeah. especially in the dock space heavy metal parking lot uh, uh uh might be my favorite movie and it um we had a, oh really oh yeah we had a we oh had man a, we had a um uh we so yeah when i first met with sam and adam uh to talk to, to talk about telemarketers that was like the first thing i brought up of, of how it made me it reminded me of that um and we had a we had a watch party at my house the other day for the second episode that we kicked off with uh with heavy metal parking lot to uh to start us off yeah it was a time magazine on i think our review brought it up which was a thrill <laughs> to see uh having a parking lot name dropped in a yeah. review in time uh, that is that is very exciting um can i ask where did you watch it what's the best place to see heavy metal parking lot because i'm seeing some youtube rips but i wonder if there's a better better way to watch it i think youtube is the way i know that they they did just release a dvd even a blu-ray i, I bought but i haven't put any of there's a lot of extras um but yeah the you know it that was a tape traders tape back in the day so i i, I think watching on youtube is very much in the mm-hmm. spirit of, mm-hmm. uh, of having metal parking on sure yeah yeah that's great awesome well chris i i feel bad for stepping on your on your vibe but um uh, <laughs> no, what, have you got? what what are you endorsing so yeah um I am endorsing uh, uh, a movie that's, I don't think it's available to stream anywhere. You may have to go to some dark corners of the internet to find it. Um, But it's a movie that was an HBO documentary in the 90s called Small Town Ecstasy, um, which is about, it's a documentary about a middle-aged father of two who um, kind of has this break i think he's going through a divorce or or a separation um and he decides to become a raver um and go to raves all the time um and dress like a 19 year old raver from like 1997 takes his kids to raves um and I, i recommend it just because uh it it kind of reminds me of telemarketers in that like yeah it's so gritty it's so scrungy it's so raw um it kind of has that 90s hbo documentary uh feel you know if you're a fan of that early todd phillips stuff like a uh uh frat uh was the frat house movie things just called frat house or like the hated gg allen movie um yeah small town ecstasy a lot like telemarketers wades into really 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 dark territory but kind of gleefully splashes around in it and has fun with it uh kaplan what you got bud i've got a good one actually this week it's a trader joe's (laughs) (laughs) it's the trader joe's dill salad have any have either one of you guys had this Mm, no no it sounds good though i like dill it's like, you know, a bunch of green stuff, kale, cabbage, all these things, you know, that are healthy. But then it comes with 
like some dill powder that you put on top of it. And then this like dill uh, dressing, like a kind of white, kind of creamy dill dressing. But the best part of it is it comes with like dill potato chips. Mm. And you put them on the salad and you mix the whole thing together. And it's so if you like, if you even remotely like pickles whatsoever, this is like such a good salad. It's just, you know, it's like a bag that comes fully made and you can just eat the whole thing by yourself for lunch. And you're like, wow, I had a healthy lunch and it was delicious. Um, And it's like five bucks. So, uh, Chris, I do a lot of. Uh, tasting new things from Trader Joe's. Sure. I uh, especially if my wife's not there, I will buy any anything that catches my my eye, and then I will uh, attend to give honest reviews on the podcast. So I love it. I'm a Trader big Joe's fan of dill the, salad. The Trader Amazing. Joe's frozen section. Um, Trader Joe's Indian curry. Oh yeah, it's got me through yeah, a tough time. The, yeah. I can't let it go in the frozen section. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. <sighs> joke you have a five-year-old daughter you might understand yeah (laughs) well cool well thanks again chris for coming on Uh, everyone should check out your show it's wild and if you want to ask us anything or you want us to forward chris any questions uh, let us know what you think about documentary filmmaking anything you can email us at just shootitpod at gmail.com you can find us across all social media at just shootitpod i'm on instagram at okaplan and I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media, including Letterboxd. And I've been getting a few followers. So oh, come on. It's Get very exciting to me. It's really great. I'm, I'm, it's truly motivating me to post better Letterboxd content. I was like, oh, maybe I'll become a Letterboxd influencer. Like our friend and listener, Andy Young. Okay. He's, in that, he's a Letterboxd influencer. You know, he's great. got a following. It's cool. But there's not a better... Uh, Put our social media out, out there. Anyway, uh, this episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. I bet Noah's on Letterboxd, too, and he's certainly on TikTok. Give him a follow. Uh, and you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Chazar. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.